0: Normally, your biggest worry this time of year should be which beech read to throw in your bag. Clearly, that isn't the case this year. Instead, this summer, a lot more people are thinking ahead to the fall. Well, a national debate is growing over how to handle the upcoming school year.
1: The big question, of course, just how safe is it to return to the classroom?
0: These rising numbers, I talked to a lot of skeptical parents and teachers today about how this is going to work. As some states see historic numbers of daily COVID-19 cases, school districts across the country are also trying to come up with plans to bring kids back to class in the fall. In cities like New York, the plan is to bring kids back in person for a few days at a time. And that's only after they meet certain criteria. But other districts like Los Angeles and San Diego, which are seeing historically high numbers of COVID-19 cases, say they're not risking it. For them, school will be online only this fall. Educators and public health experts agree in-classroom is best for teachers and for students, but this pandemic is making that a lot more complicated. And it's led to a huge debate between federal officials, public health experts, parents, and educators, who are all weighing how to make sure kids get the best education possible without risking people's health and lives in the process. So to start off today's show, we're going to break down what the major concerns are about getting kids back to school and what experts say needs to happen next. Okay, so if you're confused by this push to reopen schools while we're still dealing with a pandemic, here's why it's happening. One, many health experts say that, from what we know about COVID-19 so far, kids, at least younger kids, aren't as at risk for getting seriously sick from it. There's also some evidence that they might be less likely to spread the illness than adults. Two, health experts and educators also point out that it's really important kids go back to school. Dr. Sarah Bodie is a pediatrician in Ohio and a member of the American Academy of Pediatrics Council on School Health.
2: What we know is that school for kids is not just about academics. There are so many things that happen for kids in school, right? So it does support their academics, but it also supports their social emotional learning, their nutrition, if they're getting breakfast and lunch programs there, Um, mental health services. You're often getting evaluated by either a social worker or a guidance counselor in school if you're having issues. And a lot of kids actually get their mental health treatment right in
0: school. So when it comes to reopening, the risk of COVID-19 transmission, at least among younger kids, appears to be low. And the benefits for returning are huge. Still, that doesn't mean there's no risk here. And there's still a lot we don't know about COVID-19 and how it spreads, including among kids.
2: What the Academy said is that everybody's plan and efforts should have the goal of getting kids back to in-person learning. Now, that doesn't mean that you just open up schools in the fall with no restrictions and get everybody back. That is definitely not what they're saying. But what they're saying is we really need to look at what are the measures that we need to take to get back to this and how can we do that safely And then what resources do schools need? Because if they're gonna do it safely, they might need, right, some funding or other programming in order to make that happen.
0: Back in May, the CDC put out guidelines intended to help school officials and local health departments figure out how to reopen, based on the level of community transmission in their particular district. It includes advice on things like how best to clean surfaces, how to ensure social distancing, and what to do if a student does test positive for COVID-19. President Trump argues that the CDC guidelines are too strict and that they're creating such a high bar that states are deciding to keep schools closed.
2: We have to open the schools. We have to get them open.
0: Trump has also threatened to withhold federal funding from school districts that refuse to reopen, which is usually something Congress has to agree to. But remember, these guidelines from the CDC are just guidelines. When it comes to making decisions on whether and how to reopen, those decisions are happening at the state and local level, in places like Boulder, Colorado. I
1: don't know of anyone who doesn't think, for the most part, that having our kids safely back in school is the best option for families, for communities, for for everybody. It's that safely part that is so challenging. This is Kathy Gebhardt. I am the vice president of the Boulder Valley School District, which is in Boulder, Colorado. And I am the immediate past president of the Colorado Association of School Boards. I also teach education law at two of the schools in Colorado. I'm an attorney by training
0: and a mother of five and grandmother of two. As a public education advocate and an elected official, Gebhardt has a front-row seat as parents, educators, superintendents, health officials, and public officials try to figure out a path forward. I know that every week,
1: members of our public health department and members from the University of Colorado and members from our school district and members from the other school district that we share a county with all have conversations about where are we, what are our numbers look like, where do we think we're headed, what are the trends? Because I know families really need to know for planning, schools are supposed to reopen next month. <laughs> and so what kinds of guidance can we give them? What kinds of
0: assurances can we give them when things are changing every day? That's in the short term. But in the long term, there's even more questions that districts across the country are still trying to figure out. The most controversial issue I think many school districts are going to face is
1: do we require masks or is there a mask mandate or is there just a suggestion that you wear masks and what is the best way to implement that to get the best results? And then what do you do when you have inadvertent failure to comply with that as opposed to a more intentional failure to comply? And what is the community position on that? And how do we sculpt policies around that? There's lots of issues around attendance. How do you take attendance in a hybrid environment, right? What do you do when a child gets sick? What do you do when a teacher gets sick? Do you close down just the cohort? Do you close down the school? What kinds of opportunities are we offering that are the kinds of reasons that kids go to school. For example, I'm not sure how you offer choir. I'm not sure how you offer PE. I'm not sure how you offer band in this environment. But for many kids, that's why they go to school. So how do we have policies around making sure our students stay engaged when we can't offer them the kinds of opportunities that keep them engaged in school? So those are the kinds of questions that we're trying to answer.
0: To help answer these questions and reopen schools safely, health experts and educators have called upon Congress and the administration to give districts more federal funding. So far, they've sent out over $13 billion, which may seem like a lot, but it's less than 1% of the entire COVID-19 stimulus package. Historically speaking, the federal government isn't really involved in funding schools.
1: Funding, for the most part, is a local issue, it's a state issue. So the federal funding for the most part across states only accounts for somewhere between 10 and maybe at the high end, 14% of the total amount of funding that comes into school districts. And for that money, most of it is targeted to certain populations like children who qualify for special education services or Title I dollars. And so the federal money pre-COVID did not account for a large part of our budgets. What we're now facing across many states, as we all know, is shrinking budgets because of COVID. And so a shrinking ability for states to be able to meet all the demands that are being placed on them. And a lot of those demands are around education and healthcare. And so what we're asking school districts to do is to be able to meet all those demands with their diminished resources. And so the federal government least um, how it's been perceived and how it's been received in Colorado, did step up and send some money to the states. And that money through our governor and through our legislature was sent to the school districts, but it comes with a lot of restrictions, which makes sense. In some ways, but in other ways, it needs to have some fewer restrictions so that each district can be able to have the latitude to spend those resources as they think they need to, to be able to allow students and, and staff to come back safely.
0: For Dr. Bodie, this also comes back to a question of funding.
2: I mean, unfortunately, we have a long history in this country of not really valuing and supporting our education system as a whole. And I think that this pandemic has sort of borne to light some of the you know struggles that we
0: had within this system already. And not just having to do with students.
2: What do we need to get, you know, schools additional money and resources so that these teachers can feel supported going back? And they're going through their own mental health, you know, stressors right now as We all are with adults, but, you know, their jobs are in a constant state of flux, too. Mm -hmm. So not only do kids not know what's going to happen when they start back, neither do teachers. You know, that's a challenge. So uh, they all need our grace and support right now.
0: For Gebhardt, COVID-19 is shining a spotlight on the education inequities that she has spent most of her life trying to fix. My whole history has
1: been around funding and opportunity gaps. So what I hope is that we can come together to figure out how we come out of this stronger and how we come out of this more focused on what we need to be able to do to meet every student's needs. Because I really, really am concerned that we're going to come out of this more fractionalized than we went into it. And that is, that is a, a nightmare that I hope we don't all have to live through. So I hope that we can find ways to come together around these
0: very political and controversial issues. That's my hope. So what's the skim? It may be the middle of summer, but across the country, parents, teachers, and officials are all thinking about going back to school. And the question of what to do come this fall must be answered by state and local officials. But parents' concerns also come into play, especially those who may soon be expected back at the office. And some teachers are also expressing concerns about returning to work when there's still so much we don't know about the virus. Health experts and educators agree that returning to school is what's best for kids, but they're also pushing for more funding from the federal government to do so safely. That hasn't happened yet. And in the meantime, districts are making their own decisions based on the data they have about what fall 2020 will look like.
2: We have breaking NFL news. The team announcing this morning they are getting rid of both the name and the logo. Prove today that activism matters, and never doesn't always mean never.
0: This week, one of the biggest sports franchises in the United States announced it's getting a name change. On Monday, the Washington NFL team, one of the oldest teams in the league, said it will retire its name, the Redskins, as well as its logo, which has been around for almost 90 years. The decision comes only 10 days after the team said it was conducting a, quote, thorough review. But for many, it's been a long time coming. The Navajo Nation called this a, quote, historic day for all indigenous peoples around the world. But this is something activists have been fighting for for decades. And it wasn't always just about the name and logo. The team's old fight song faced scrutiny for years. And the team's cheerleaders used to wear black braided hair wigs. In 1972, a delegation of Native Americans met with team leaders to get them to drop the name. The team agreed to drop the wigs and change the fight song, but it kept the name. Over the years, other groups of Native Americans have filed lawsuits to try to get the U.S. Patent Office to scrap the team's trademark. We should point out that history has been on the activist side on this. Even dictionaries like Merriam-Webster started calling out the term as problematic at the end of the 1800s. And when the dictionary gets involved, you know it's a big deal. Despite the pressure, in 2013, the team's current owner, Daniel Snyder, said it would never change the name and resisted calls to retire the mascot until now. That's in part because as the country deals with a huge moment of reckoning over racial injustice in the United States, corporate sponsors are also taking notice. And in this case, they're putting their money where their mouth is. The team's most conspicuous sponsor is FedEx. FedEx pays a whopping $8 million annually to put its name on the team's stadium. Earlier this month, the company told the team that it needed to change its name or else FedEx would pull its name from the stadium. Other sponsors like Bank of America, Nike, and Pepsi also said that the Redskins' name had to go. The Washington NFL team is the latest organization to re-evaluate its history and relationship to racism in response to the growing protests around the country in support of Black Lives Matter. Those protests have also sparked renewed calls to erase all kinds of public representations of racism, seen everywhere from your grocery store shelves to your Spotify playlist. These calls for change aren't new, but now that more of corporate America is finally paying attention, More of these images and names are starting to fade away. Last month, the food giant Quaker announced it is retiring the Aunt Jemima name and image from its pancake and syrup brand because it was built on a stereotype of black Americans. And bands like Lady Antebellum and the Dixie Chicks have now rushed to drop the parts of their names that evoke wistful interpretations of the pre-Civil War South. Goodbye, Dixie Chicks, say hello to just the Chicks. But if you're thinking, how much does changing a name or logo really help? Experts say changing branding is important, and while it's not enough to just get rid of a name or logo, it is a first step. That's because even if you don't eat pancakes or listen to country music, images and branding of racial stereotypes contribute to larger issues of discrimination and cause pain and trauma for people of color because they represent oppression. So scrapping a name or logo that represents systemic racism can be a powerful indicator of social change. And going forward, experts say that more companies will have to drop offensive imagery or risk losing customers. But rebranding takes more than just updating an Instagram profile. Now that the Washington NFL team has scrapped the Redskins name, it's got to complete the transformation. By changing everything from uniforms to signs to merch, And that takes time and money. And don't forget those legal fees. Trademarking the new name, which is still TBD, could cost the team and the NFL some cash. But this could actually be a move that makes them money in the long run. That's because colleges and universities in the US from Syracuse to Stanford successfully changed their names and logos years ago and moved away from using stereotypes of Native Americans in their logos and mascots. According to one expert, those sports franchises actually made more money after they made the switch. Now, people are looking to see how this decision could impact other teams in the U.S. The baseball franchise, the Cleveland Indians, is also reevaluating its name, while other teams like the Atlanta Braves and the Kansas City Chiefs haven't announced any changes. And local advocates are hoping that the Washington NFL team's decision could have an impact in other ways, too. According to a database of high school mascots, over 2,000 high schools still have a name or a mascot that's related to Native American imagery, which many consider offensive. And in the wake of the momentum from the Black Lives Matter movement, some high schools are also making moves to choose new mascots. Decades of activism have worked to create historic change in sports and in corporate America, Because of sweeping calls for racial justice around the world, organizations are dropping offensive imagery they've used for decades, and considering the ways in which their legacies can impact racial equality moving forward. For now, there's still no word on which name the Washington NFL team will pick, but its head coach says he wants it to honor the US military and Native Americans, and it should be ready to make its debut for kickoff in September. And that's all for Skim This. We'll be back in your feed again next Friday. In the meantime, let us know what questions you have about what's going on in the news right now. You can email us at audio at or call and leave us a voicemail at 646-461-6370. Don't forget to subscribe and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. For more Skim and to sign up for our daily newsletter, head on over to theskim.com.